Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Hi, welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative person in Mississippi, or people who study Mississippi in this case. We talk to artists, musicians, craftspeople, photographers, as well as people who help promote and uh, research the the culture and arts of Mississippi, and, and that's what we're doing today. We're talking with Dr. David Evans. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of of Memphis and has been a longtime researcher of African-American music traditions of the South. David, welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be on your program. Now, people who uh, listen to MPB up in North Mississippi or, you know, maybe even the suburban Memphis area have seen you around as a performer, right? I mean, you've, in, recent, in, in, in recent decades, you've been out there as a musician and done. I've seen you at festivals and things like that. Is that right? Uh, yes, I uh, do play. Uh, I've been a performer as long as I've been a researcher, uh, going back to the early 1960s. And uh, uh, in fact, I played in Mississippi uh, back in August at a picnic in cold water. So very good. Uh, I do get uh, across the border uh, now and then to play music. Excellent. But today we are here to uh, talk. You've written many books and and been involved with documenting. Uh, African-American and other um, cultural uh, folk music throughout the years. But today we're here to talk about your new memoir, uh, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Fieldwork in the 1960s. It's a new book out on University Press of Mississippi, and it's a collaborative book uh, with your late friend Marina Bokelman. Can you give folks just kind of the the, the intro kind of uh, overview of what, what the book is about and, and, and how it came to be? Well, the book is about uh, blues uh, field research. Uh, Marina and I were both grad students at UCLA uh, starting in 1965. And uh, I I had done a little bit of uh, field research and interviewing of blues singers, uh, some of them who were on the folk revival circuit at that time time uh, when I was an undergraduate student at Harvard University. I graduated in 1965 and moved to uh, Los Angeles to become a graduate student at UCLA, and that's where I met Marina, and uh, she was interested in folk song as well, Uh, not quite into blues as much as I was, but she soon uh, got into it and uh, accompanied me on the Uh, field research that uh, we did in Mississippi in 1966 and 1967 in the summers, and then also a bit of work that we did in California with uh, blues artists uh, who had moved from Mississippi to California. 
Yeah, and it's so, um, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating book. It's uh, it, it's of very much of a specific time, and it, it in a lot of ways it's uh, you know of someone who kind of came up in folk studies myself. It's like an adventure story, reading about the <laughs> you know the adventures of uh, uh, this young couple and their VW Bug who go off into the into the deep south with their tape recorders and and uh, cameras. Um, right. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. Of course. Uh, I mean, everybody has uh, some impression of the 1960s, even the many people who didn't live through it. Uh, but uh, it was a momentous time. Uh, an awful lot of things were going on, uh, great changes in our country. Of course, uh, Vietnam and the civil rights uh, struggle uh, loomed very large uh, at that time. But uh, there were other uh, things, a whole hippie movement that uh, we were peripherally uh, involved in. I, I wouldn't say that Marina and I were hippies, though some people might have described us uh, that way, but uh, we, we certainly weren't dropouts. We were serious uh, graduate students, but we did live the California lifestyle. And of course, that was very different from the blues artists of Mississippi or most of the other people in Mississippi too. Uh, we only encountered uh, one group of hippies <laughs> on our trip uh, who uh, rescued us when my car skidded off the road in a Delta rainstorm, and uh, they, they were on their way to California. <laughs> <laughs> they were getting out. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, I think the thing that, you know, unfortunately, um, Marina uh, passed away earlier this year. I would have loved to have talked to her about this book. Um, the, the book is a, is a, you know, your work at that time was a collaboration and the book was a collaboration as well. And I, and so could you talk about kind of each of y'all's roles kind of in this project? You know, I mean, I guess when you did the original project, she wasn't just um, um, along for the ride, as it were, she was her own scholar and kind of contributed to the to the project uh, as well. Right, uh, she we very much had uh, equal or complementary roles. Um, it was uh, perhaps uh, more my research in the sense that uh, I wrote my uh, MA and PhD. Uh, thesis and dissertation uh, largely on the basis of uh, this work and other field work. Uh, I, I did the recording. I had uh, known some of the artists uh, already uh, from previous encounters. Uh, Marina took photographs and also uh, many of the interviews we did were not on tape. We were trying to conserve tape because it was expensive and she would uh, take them down sort of like dictation, you might say. Uh, so uh, it was perhaps more my research, but she played an equal role in it. Uh, she, of course, was a fellow graduate student in the folklore program, and she had an undergraduate degree in anthropology, so she was interested in other things, uh, the social structure, kinship, and so on, a number of the Blues musicians were sort of from intermarrying families, which was an interesting phenomenon. Uh, and uh, so she did uh, some of that kind of work. And, and of course, uh, was also she and I, of course, uh, discussed 
uh, the material. She, she was very knowledgeable about uh, blues and folk music in general. Yeah. Um, you're listening to the Arts Hour, and I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is David Evans, and he's got a new book out, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Field Work in the 1960s. It's his collaborative book with the uh, late scholar Marina Bokelman, and, and, and David is a professor emeritus at University of Memphis. Um, now, the one thing I wanted to make, you know, uh, you, you guys were young, you were in your 20s, um, but the, the thing that I f- was impressed with was there was a lot of preparation and a lot of thought went into the, you know, spe- you know when you, you, you it, this wasn't an impetuous trip, as it were. It was, you, you guys had contacts, you had thought this through really seriously. Talk about some of the, especially, and even like kind of how you were going to be perceived by you know, local people when you got there in terms of your relationship to each other. Talk about your kind of preparation for this trip and what you kind of put together before you came. Well, our preparation, of course, included our academic training at UCLA, and I had had a little exposure to the field of folklore even at Harvard. Uh, At that time, I was a classics major and uh, made the transition uh, to folklore uh, through one of my professors, uh, Albert Lord, uh, who got to be pretty uh, famous in uh, academic circles, at least, uh, from his book, uh, The Singer of Tales. He had studied uh, the oral epic tradition in Yugoslavia back in the 1930s and uh, relating it to the uh, epics of uh, Homer. And of course, I had studied Homer. So I, I took courses with uh, Albert Lord and came to understand his uh, oral formulaic theory of composition, how these epics were composed uh, using little formulaic phrases and uh, also they were sung, so uh, the melodies too were formulaic. And uh, I perceived something similar in the blues and wanted to uh, kind of test that in the field. And uh, so uh, by recording singers uh, doing the same songs on multiple occasions so I could study variation, uh, also recording different singers singing versions of the same song, singers who had learned from one another. And it was still possible to do that in the 1960s. Uh, The singers were generally in there 50s and 60s by that time. Some had more or less uh, given up music or retired or didn't really have many public gigs anymore. Uh, Some were in not the greatest health or had uh, alcohol problems in a few cases. Uh, But uh, at any rate, it was still possible to do that. So uh, we had this academic training. I had a little bit of fieldwork experience already. Marina had an undergraduate degree in anthropology. And uh, so uh, I I think we were pretty well prepared uh, in those days. Uh, Folklore fieldwork was, as such, was not really something that was taught. And uh, it was fairly informal at that time. Uh, Also, our mentor, D.K. Wilgus, had done uh, almost all of his research in the uh, Southern white musical traditions. And 
the so our perspective was on how to do fieldwork was somewhat shaped by that, and things were a little bit different in the black community. For for example, um, Wilgus taught us that we should never pay uh, our informants uh, for uh, recording music. Uh, well, that worked fairly well in the Southern white tradition where music was and song were viewed as a kind of general cultural or community heritage. But in the black tradition, uh, generally uh, songs are thought of as personal expressions or personal property and that uh, performance of music uh, should be compensated. So we had a little bit of difficulty coming to that realization, but it uh, was apparent uh, fairly early on in our uh, field work. Uh, and, and we did uh, pay as best we could. We were not wealthy. We were grad students and anyone who has ever been a grad student, uh, unless they're independently wealthy themselves, uh, knows what it's like. <laughs> yeah, you're, the thriftiness came through uh, over a lot in the book was kind of like, you know, I hope we have enough money for this or, you know, the uh, yeah. and then also I was really uh, intrigued by, you know, you guys were doing fundraise. You were trying to make money while you were here as well by like looking for records that you could possibly sell in the kind of blues collector right. market. Right. Uh, there were no grants at that time for uh, doing field work of this sort. In fact, uh, blues and black music in general, with the exception of jazz uh, in a few universities, uh, were just not taught. And uh, so uh, we had to finance it ourselves. Uh, we did borrow some equipment from UCLA, uh, recording equipment, uh, but uh, we did it through savings from our grad assistant salaries and uh, through uh, finding records at uh, junk shops, uh, thrift shops, and so on, uh, generally old 78s. And there was a, a collector market so we could uh, auction them or sell them directly to uh, other collectors. I mean, right. you could buy them for a nickel or a dime a piece and you might sell them for $5.00. Uh, to a collector if it was a rare item. Yeah. And $5 would pay for a motel for a night. Well, we, we've, we're coming up on break, and we I pulled some music from some of your earlier uh, recording efforts and, uh, and and tried to... and got a couple of folks that, that are featured in the book, and I just was hoping you could talk real briefly about uh, our first uh, artist, Roosevelt Holtz. Uh, Roosevelt was uh, an artist that I worked with uh, quite a bit from 1965, uh, actually, uh, until 1973, I think was the last time I saw him. Uh, he had lived a, a difficult life. He was from Tylertown, Mississippi, and uh, he was a cousin of uh, a woman, uh, Rosa Youngblood, who married the famous blues artist Tommy Johnson and uh, Roosevelt, uh, this was in the late 1920s and early 30s, uh, Roosevelt came under Tommy Johnson's influence and followed Tommy and his wife back to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which was close to Tommy's hometown. And Roosevelt's career was going along very well, but uh, unfortunately he was 
kind of a rough and rowdy guy, and he he killed a man. Uh, basically, it was over a woman, and uh, as he described it, he killed the man before the man killed him. Uh, but uh, he did a stretch in Parchman Farm, and uh, that kind of blighted his career for the rest of his life. He was an ex-con and always looking over his shoulder, and he finally moved from Mississippi to Louisiana, and he was a bootlegger and had other various hustles. Uh, in fact, uh, when I first met him, he had just returned from a run to Bogalusa. He, he lived in a dry town, Franklinton, Louisiana, and he'd just come back with a carload of booze, and all of the winos in town were very <laughs> over happy to see place. him. When I arrived, <laughs> uh, Volkswagen with uh, a red Volkswagen with Massachusetts license plates on it, and uh, <laughs> the cop was walking the beat outside, and Roosevelt looked out the window and pulled his shotgun off the mantelpiece and aimed it at the cop. And fortunately, the cop didn't had approached the house. But uh, I mean, that was my uh, introduction to fieldwork in the South. Oh, wow. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is David Evans, and we're talking about his new memoir, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Fieldwork in the 1960s. And this was a collaborative book with his uh, late friend and collaborator, Marina Bokelman. Um, now, the one thing I wanted to before just touch on a little bit, you know, in terms of your preparation for the trip, uh, you and Marina at the time were a couple. You weren't married, but you before you left uh, California, you decided to get some wedding rings so that people wouldn't, so maybe to kind of ease the uh, the situation in terms of your relation, how people saw you. And I just want you to talk a little bit about that. Well, of course, we knew that uh, an unmarried young couple would not go over very well in Mississippi, uh, both with uh, people like, you know, motel owners or any of the white folks uh, we encountered or possible encounters with the law. And of course, it would also not go over with uh, many of the musicians and their families uh, that we uh, encountered as well. I mean, blues, of course, in the blues community uh, was perhaps would have been more tolerant of that. But uh, some of the uh, blues musicians had joined the church. Uh, in fact, uh, several of our uh, informants were uh, preachers. Uh, by that time, uh, the older brother of Tommy Johnson, 
and so on. So uh, we thought it was best to go as a married couple, you know, presenting ourselves uh, that way. It's, uh, you know, some might criticize that uh, today and uh, might criticize the fact that we were living together. But, you know, that was the 1960s and California and um, it was very different from Mississippi at that time. Yeah, yeah. Probably still is in, <laughs> in some ways, not, not as much. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, is that, that took up a lot of your time is just really just like connecting with people. Um, and, and you know, in the age of cell phones, it's hard to understand kind of the difficulty of that. But a lot of the people you're going to see didn't have phones you sometimes were able to connect with them in advance, but other not. Talk a little bit about that that challenge and maybe a little, you know, kind of um, stories around that. Well, it was very difficult to find people. And sometimes we would drive, uh, oh, gosh, 50, 80 miles to follow a lead to someone. Uh, it might not even have an address. Uh, you have to go to the town and start asking People And, of course, uh, race relations at that time were a little bit touchy. If you asked white folks, uh, they wondered why you wanted to, why people in a car with California license plates wanted to see some uh, local black person. Uh, if you asked black people, uh, sometimes they were suspicious or just scared, you know, that... Uh, uh, race relations were often pretty bad there, and we were just sort of plunging into that scene. Uh, then, as a, I say, uh, most people did not have telephones, and uh, getting addresses or directions, uh, you'd get directions like, uh, it's the third white folks' house on the left. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Uh, and... Uh, it was really hard to find people. And then many times they weren't home or they were at work. Uh, sometimes we'd go to where people worked and uh, it might be like at a cotton gin or something or even out in the fields. And you'd wind up talking to the person's boss man who wasn't necessarily happy to see you and uh, said, uh, you can talk to him after he gets off work. And so you wait around for three or four hours in some, you know, little town with people staring at you. <laughs> hmm. It's, uh, it, it wasn't easy uh, doing that kind of field work. And there are an awful lot of frustrations and, and probably some dangers. We were actually lucky we didn't really run into any uh, physical difficulties, you might say. One time... Uh, I I think Marina was back at the motel, but uh, I was followed by a cop car in Cleveland, Mississippi. But you know they didn't stop me. So now you know, kind of just talking about hippies earlier, you know, and there's pictures of y'all in the book at the time, you know, kind of presenting as a pretty clean cut, you know, young, nice young couple who are both students. You you kind of had maybe. Do you think that kind of helped, kind of grease the social situation a little more than if you were it was you and another guy or that you know you were more kind of presenting as more counterculture yeah 
Yeah, I mean, we dressed, uh, I guess you could say conservatively or normally, uh, whatever. I, I didn't have long hair or any facial hair. Uh, so, you know, we just looked like uh, a young couple, I guess, you know. Uh, and uh, that, uh, I'm sure, uh, eased situations that might have otherwise been a bit uh, touchy if we had actually looked like hippies. Uh, a number of people uh, in the black community uh, mistook us, you might say, for civil rights workers. Uh, this was a little bit after the civil rights law and voting rights law had been passed, but there were still uh, activists uh, in the uh, area. And uh, of course, it hadn't been too many years before that the uh, three civil rights workers were uh, murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi. So uh, we were a little bit apprehensive of being uh, identified in that way. It wasn't that we weren't sympathetic to the movement, of course, but uh, it's just, it wasn't what we were doing, or at least not directly. I, I do feel that our work uh, did contribute, uh, perhaps uh, indirectly, to, uh, you know, better racial understanding and right. race relations. I, I think, you know, information about culture, you know, always does that. Yeah. You're listening to The Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is David Evans, and we're talking about his new book, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Field Work in the 1960s. It's new out on University Press of Mississippi, and he did this in collaboration with his uh, partner in this project, Marina Bokelman. Um, you know, as so you and Marina were both musicians. You had a deep interest in, in different forms of traditional music, and you had a lot of people that were... Um, you know, you kind of had some leads going in and you knew a little bit about certain performers and that. Uh, but the, the other thing I think that was, you know, that's fascinating is just the discovery process that you have while you're in a trip like this. And I was wondering if you had a memory of two or two of kind of just uh, kind of happenstance, you know, people that you met by happenstance or you weren't expecting to meet and kind of being just, you know, uh, taken by their music or their 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 uniqueness in terms of as a performer? Well, I could mention uh, two uh, people. Uh, one was uh, Boogie Bill Webb uh, in New Orleans, uh, although he had Mississippi connections. Uh, we were recording uh, another musician there, uh, Arzo Youngblood in New Orleans. Uh, he was a nephew of uh, Tommy Johnson uh, uh, by marriage, uh, his Aunt uh, Rosa Youngblood married Tommy, and uh, Arzo uh, was about 18 years old at the time and had started playing guitar, and Tommy had already uh, made records and was somewhat famous, so uh, suddenly he had this famous uncle. Well, anyway, we had gotten a lead and tracked Arzo to New Orleans and were recording him uh, when his uh, neighbor uh, heard the music and dropped by. Uh, he turned out to be Boogie Bill Webb, also a musician who also had learned from uh, Tommy Johnson uh, in a uh, different way. Uh, his mother knew Tommy and used to hire him for parties that she uh, hosted. And so uh, it was just pure coincidence that uh, we uh, discovered or, in a sense, rediscovered Boogie Bill. He had actually 
made a commercial record back in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, he was a bit more modern and younger than some of our other informants, but uh, he could go back to that older tradition when he wanted to. And so uh, that was one discovery. Uh, another one was uh, Jack Owens in uh, Bentonia, Mississippi. Uh, I skipped James, uh, a great early blues artist uh, from Bentonia, who had recorded some wonderful blues back in 1931, had been rediscovered uh, by some other researchers in 1964. And, in, uh, and Skip got on the folk uh, circuit. Uh, and uh, in 1965, he visited me. Uh, this is before I moved in with Marina, but uh, visited me in California. Uh, my partner, uh, my roommate at that time was Al Wilson who uh, later went on to fame with the group Canned Heat. So uh, he, Al was a big blues fan and musician as well. So we hosted Skip for a few days and recorded and interviewed him. And uh, I, my big interest was in the blues tradition and Skip's music seemed to be very traditional. So I asked him about other musicians in his community, Bentonia. I was already planning the field trip uh, for later that year. And Skip gave me a couple names, uh, one of whom I never could find, but the other one I did, a younger musician named Cornelius Bright. And uh, Cornelius, uh, I recorded him and interviewed him, and he uh, uh, recommended another musician in his community, Jack Owens, and uh, took me there to meet uh, Jack. Uh, Jack was about, actually about Skip James, age. In fact, he and Jack had one time uh, married two sisters. And I always wondered why Jack, uh, why Skip never told me about Jack. And maybe it was <laughs> because Jack was very good. I mean, he, in my opinion, he was as good an artist as Skip James was, yeah. but more, more country. Skip had gone to the city, had more of a formal education, and his songs were more polished. But Jack was in the same style. And just as great an artist. And uh, when Cornelius and I got to his place out in the country, uh, it was dark. And uh, as I uh, found out, uh, you don't go to <laughs> uh, people's houses out in the country uh, when it's dark, uh, a stranger doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but of course, fortunately, uh, Cornelius knocked and Jack asked, uh, who is it? And, you know, and Cornelius, he recognized Cornelius's voice. Uh, so uh, he came to the door with a knife in his hands and his hands all bloody. It turned out he'd been cleaning fish, but <laughs> it was, <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> my reaction. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, here I was way, way out in the country. Yeah. And, uh, and a man with a bloody knife and, answers and, the door. Yeah, at night, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, so, well, let, uh, let's but, take but another... It was great, though. He had a great session with Jackie, warmed up uh, very quickly. And, uh, and I continued to uh, know him up into the 1990s. Yeah, he, uh, he, he lasted uh, a long time, a couple generations he there. Sure yeah. did. He sure yeah. did. He was in, in his 90s when he passed away. I went to Europe with him uh, twice, uh, the only two times he toured in Europe. And 
uh, it, it was a great relationship. Excellent. Well, let's hear a, a song from another uh, one of the people that you recorded on this these initial trips, Babe Stovall. Could you talk just, just real briefly about him? Well, Babe, uh, in a way, uh, got me started. Uh, I had uh, interviewed uh, Sunhouse and Booker White uh, during my college days at Harvard when they were on the scene. Uh, Babe was another musician from Tylertown, Mississippi, who had moved uh, across the state line to Louisiana, in his case to New Orleans, where uh, he felt that he could have a career as a street singer uh, living in the French Quarter. And uh, by God, he did. Uh, He played for hippies and tourists around in the French Quarter and made a living at it, uh, playing old blues and folk songs. And uh, a fellow named Mark Ryan had uh, dropped out of Brown University after his freshman year and moved to New Orleans and hooked up with Babe. And uh, they uh, both were struggling, you know, in the music field and decided to take a trip up uh, north to New York and New England to get some gigs in the folk scene and somehow Mark knew about me or heard about me and contacted me and I was able to arrange through friends a few gigs in the Boston Cambridge area so uh, Mark and Babe stayed at my dorm uh, in uh, at Harvard and uh, I interviewed him and then we uh, later I later visited him on my way to California and then Marina and I came back uh, to uh, Louisiana, and we recorded Babe some more and uh, interviewed him. Uh, he was a, a great guy, played a national guitar, big, heavy, steel-bodied guitar, and he could flip it behind his head and uh, play it that way. And uh, he, he was the inspiration for uh, Jerry Jeff Walker's uh, tune, Mr. Bojangles. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that was Babe Stovall. That's yeah. great. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is David Evans, and we're talking about his new book, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Field Work in the 1960s, a collaboration with the late Marina Bogleman. Um, let, let's talk about Marina uh, just a, a second in terms of, like, you know, the book has a, a lot of her photographs that she took uh, as part of uh, y'all's uh, trips to Louisiana, Mississippi. Um and she she had kind of a very specific um, 
kind of theory and style as to how she did her photos. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Well, right. She didn't use flash. And uh, actually, uh, I had hoped that she would because uh, I realized that there might be problems. Uh, people with uh, dark complexion in often uh, dark environments. Uh, most of our recording was done indoors uh, or even on uh, porches, which were shaded. And uh, that uh, so she used a film, uh, what is it, 1600 film, and uh, it, it would be processed in a certain way to uh, get, you know, as much light as possible. But uh, still, many of her uh, photos are rather dark, but it reflects the environments we were in, uh, indoors, uh, in the living room, say, of a house. Uh, many of these were small houses or what would be called shacks even. Uh, there might be a, a 20 watt or 40 watt bulb uh, overhead and uh, that was it. And it would only be turned on at night uh, even. And uh, so uh, there wasn't a great deal of uh, light. And uh, I, I think she did well under the circumstances. Although, as they say, you know, if I had been a photographer, I probably would have used flash. But she felt, and I agreed, that uh, flash could be intrusive uh, if you're not used to it. And uh, uh, most of these uh, artists and their families had uh, never or seldom been photographed before. And, uh, you know, it really can be intrusive. Uh, you know, we, we were strangers in most cases uh, to them. So uh, I, I support her, her uh, uh, decision, but uh, it did create some problems, I would say. Yeah. And one of the other prep things that I, I wanted to bring out, too, and that you mentioned a lot of the people that you were you know, you're interviewing them about kind of their, and a lot of times their past, you know, experience as performers, but a lot of them were no longer performer, you know, they weren't actively performing. So uh, y'all brought brought multiple instruments with you, in, just, you know, I guess kind of the in case you could kind of talk them into playing and or trying to play or that kind of thing. Talk a little bit about that. Well, we brought a uh, guitar uh, my guitar, uh, Marina and I both played, but uh, there wasn't room in a Volkswagen for two guitars. Uh, we brought a mandolin, a violin, uh, a set of harmonicas, because uh, most of these musicians were retired or semi-retired from playing. Uh, if they had an instrument, often it wasn't very good or maybe was missing one or two strings uh, or in most cases, they didn't have an instrument. Uh, or he, sometimes they had an electric guitar, but the amp was not working uh, very well. It was sputtering or something. So uh, it helped. Uh, it was crucial, in fact, to uh, have those instruments with us. And uh, most of our recordings, in fact, were made on uh, my instruments. And the, and the recording process itself, I mean, you had what at the time was called a portable recorder, and I'm putting quotations up, but it was still, 
you had to plug it into the wall and you know, talk about the, it was a little, you had to spend some time getting it set up. It wasn't like it is now. Right. In fact, uh, often in the houses, there was only one uh, wall socket and they might have a fan and a lamp and uh, who knows what else uh, plugged into that. Uh, there might be an overhead uh, socket for a light bulb. And so we uh, bought a little uh, extension that you could uh, screw into the overhead socket and uh, then plug something into that. And that saved us on several occasions uh, because uh, I don't, uh, I know the first year the tape recorder was not battery operated. I can't remember if the Nagra that we had uh, in 1967 was, but I think almost always we plugged in. Uh, yeah. And there was at least one situation where there was discussion about, you know, payment for electricity used by the, <laughs> by the performer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's right. Of course, that was part of the uh, general payment for uh, recording, but uh, it's, uh, I'm sure we only used a few cents of electricity at any one session, but uh, one uh, lady uh, felt that it was really going to be a strain on her uh, budget, you know, when she got the uh, utility bill. So yeah. <laughs> that became a negotiating factor. Yeah, she she was looking for every way, every angle she could get, I guess. So well, very... well, right, yes. Yeah. Uh, I won't uh, name her, but uh, she was one of the more uh, difficult uh, uh, informants that uh, we had. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, yes, we, we had, uh, as I say, you know, a payment was... Uh, negotiable uh and uh we did uh, uh so, some uh, people did not want payments uh i did uh, try and in some cases was successful in getting some of the recordings released on records and so was able to uh pay them that way and of course send copies of the records send copies of photographs prints of them to people we did that and, and of course uh monetary payments also uh, supplying uh, sometimes food and, in many cases, uh, alcohol at the sessions. Uh, blues uh, typically uh, occurred uh, in an environment where uh, alcohol was consumed, and so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't unusual to do that. Uh, and, of course, you had to be careful not to uh, bring too much and uh, often there would be one person that would drain the bottle in one gulp you know uh, at a session that was something you had to be careful about yeah. often it was not not the person you were recording but some friend <laughs> so-called friend who showed up yeah so we're talking today on the Arts Hour with David Evans. I'm Larry Morrissey, and we're talking about his book, Going Up the Country Adventures in Bluesfield Work in the 1960s. So um, you and Marina kind of parted ways at, at the close of graduate school. You went on to an academic career. She pursued a lot of things. Uh, um, she worked in herbal and uh, medicinal and healing and things like that. What kind of what brought what was the genesis of this project, this book project to to kind of go back and, and pull together these materials? 
Yeah. Well, uh, we were both uh, working on uh, MA theses in uh, folklore. Uh, she did her thesis about the uh, variant uh, forms of a particular ballad uh, called the the Coon Can Game. Uh, and uh, it was mostly in the Anglo-American tradition. Uh, mine was about the blues tradition and about uh, Tommy Johnson as a kind of central uh, figure or central focus. Uh, so uh, I, I was basically interested in that, how the tradition worked and uh, the process of learning and creating uh, blues and right. the interactions of right. singers. So, so, so I'm talking about like in recent years, you guys coming back to this and saying, okay, well, let's do a book oh, about this, you know, in the last whatever, right. five, 10 well, years. Well, we, we had, we went our separate ways in 1968, but we stayed in uh, kind of loose and friendly uh, contact uh, over the years. And uh, the, I continued uh, to be a specialist in blues and uh, other music. I became a, eventually a professor of music and ethnomusicologist. I've done field work in other traditions in Venezuela, in Ethiopia, uh, for example, uh, and have collected other forms of folklore besides uh, music. Uh, and, but uh, she, as you say, she went into uh, healing and uh, medicine, uh, and uh, I uh, we stayed in contact. I got some gigs as a performer in her area, and uh, we uh, I saw her uh, again. Uh, this was in 2015, after many years, and of course we got reminiscing about uh, our the field work, and we had these field notes and. Marina actually was the one that suggested, uh, why don't we uh, do a book uh, based on our field notes and uh, her uh, photographs? And it uh, seemed like a good idea. I mean, the field notes give, I think, a pr pretty vivid description of the experience of uh, our encounters as two young white, uh, sorry, kind of counterculture graduate students uh, working in a uh, traditional Southern black musical environment at a momentous time in American history, uh, the 1960s. So uh, we uh, worked on it uh, back and forth. Uh, I had the field notes and made photocopies for her and she edited them kind of interweaving our two accounts uh, and uh, this, she selected the photographs and then we wrote introductory chapters about our background and about field work itself and uh, a little bit about ourselves before we met. And then, of course, after we uh, parted in 1968 and uh, what came of our careers uh, from that point on. So that, that's basically uh, the book. But the uh, central part of it is our actual uh, field notes uh, from and the photographs from that period, and I, I think it's a pretty interesting story. Yeah, it's it's a great as as someone coming out of that field of folklore, it's a great adventure story, uh, even for people that aren't interested in the blues. Uh, Marina has great descriptions of 
you know, like the environment, the house, what was in the house. Uh, she, she, she's very, she was very concerned about the food and the quality of the food. Um, well, she, and, she was a great cook herself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, she, uh, well, yeah. And other things, places we stayed, uh, God, roach infested house that we rented for two weeks in Cleveland, Mississippi. And, yeah. Uh, things like that and of course uh, some of the uh, houses that uh, blues artists uh, lived in uh, as well you know descriptions of uh, living conditions and uh, the communities and our interactions with people their humorous anecdotes and there are some that are maybe a little bit frightening yeah it's 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 a great adventure story. I really enjoyed reading it. I, I encourage other po- folks to check it out. It's out now. It's uh, David Evans and Marina Bokelman going up the country adventures and blues field work in the 1960s out on University Press in Mississippi. David, thanks again so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Larry. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.